Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. This is Newsroom Robots, the podcast where we explore the intersection of artificial intelligence and the news industry. I'm Nikita Roy, data scientist, media entrepreneur, and one of the many founders currently building their ventures at the Harvard Innovation Labs. On the Newsroom Robots, I'm excited to bring you insightful conversations with industry experts about how AI is impacting the way we do journalism. This has been a big and exciting week in the world of generative AI. On Monday, November 6th, OpenAI had its first ever developer conference and unveiled a lot of new capabilities. There's now a more advanced and cheaper version of GPT-4. They announced customizable versions of ChatGPT that you can build with GPT Builder opened the OpenAI GPT store, launched a new assistance API, introduced the DALI 3 API, and a new text-to-speech API. That's a lot of new features, and my head has been buzzing with ideas of how this can be implemented into products and use cases, so I'll be writing multiple posts about this for the Newsroom Robots newsletter starting next week on how we as an industry can start thinking about working with these capabilities. So make sure you signed up for the newsletter at newsroomrobots.com. Also, as I mentioned last week, I'm excited to announce that Newsroom Robots has partnered with Jeremy Kaplan's Wonder Tools to launch the Generative AI for Media Professionals Masterclass. In December, I will host a live cohort-based two-week course alongside Jeremy Kaplan, who's the Director of Teaching and Learning at the Craig Newmark Graduate School of Journalism at the City University of New York, and writes the Wonder Tools newsletter. I'll also be building upon the generative AI workshops that I've previously conducted at esteemed institutions like the University of Toronto, the International Center for Journalists, and the Craig Newmark Graduate School of Journalism. We'll be offering you practical insights and techniques that you can apply to your work. Make sure you signed up in the link in the show notes to be the first to know when course registration goes live. And with that, let's get to today's episode. 
Joining me on the show is Dr. Mario Garcia, the Senior Advisor on News Design and Adjunct Professor at Columbia University. He's also the CEO and founder of Garcia Media and author of the book AI, The Next Revolution for Content Creators. He has been involved with the redesign and rethink of more than 700 publications in 120 countries, including the Wall Street Journal and the Washington Post. He is a recipient of the Lifetime Achievement Award from the Society of News Design, the Journalism Medal of Honor from the University of Missouri for Distinguished Service in Journalism, and the Columbia Scholastic Press Association's Charles O'Malley Excellence in Teaching Award. People Magazine also named him as one of the 100 most influential Hispanics in the United States. In today's episode, Mario shares insights from his research on how AI is revolutionizing newsrooms around the world, as discussed in his book. We also delve into practical use cases, examining how designers and illustrators are leveraging generative AI, its applications in print journalism, and strategies for teaching with generative AI in the classroom. Hi, Mario. Welcome to Newsroom Robots. I'm excited to talk all about your research that you've been doing on AI. Well, I'm happy and honored to be here, Nikita, joining you on this wonderful conversation, I think. Mario, you have an extensive background in the industry and news design, helping newsrooms really transform the way they've been communicating and bringing out their news and interacting with readers. And that's actually an area I really want to learn more about right now in terms of the potential of generative AI to help designers, illustrators, the creative individuals that we have in the newsrooms that really present the news to our audience in the formats and how generative AI can help them out. And with your experience in the industry and the book that you were writing about right now as well, how are you thinking about the potential of generative AI in helping designers and illustrators? I think that uh, AI is going to be a major force to deal with in terms of how it can contribute to the work designers do and journalists do. I think that, first of all, you need to understand that AI provides a great deal of inspiration if the prompts are right. And I think that this is part of the, the prompt engineering part of AI is so important that I devoted a great deal of space in my book to it. And as I craft my Columbia University course for the spring semester, I think I need to devote maybe one third of the course for these students who are getting a master's in journalism to the whole idea of communicating with AI. Obviously, I have been around, I've had a 54-year career, so I have been around long enough that I laugh when I go into an AI workshop and I hear somebody telling me the communication between humans and robots is not very good. And I smile because I know that the communication of humans with humans within the same setting of a newsroom has never been so good. Case in point, you're an editor and you have an idea for a story and you sit for 10 minutes with your reporter, with your journalist, and you tell that person, I would like you to write a story about this. That's the prompt. Five minutes, 10 minutes. The reporter goes out, covers the story, comes back, and the editor says, but this is not the angle that I had in mind. 
But you, the editor, she did not tell the reporter what the angle was. Case number two, photographers. The number of times in traditional journalism that the photographer or videographer goes on his or her own to shoot the visuals for a story that is already in the process of being written. Reporter has not talked to photographer. Photographer shoots what he or she thinks should be in the story, but it doesn't match what the story is at the end. I have seen that through the years. Humans not communicating with humans. So I laugh when I hear human-robot communications. I think that uh, when you're communicating with ChatGPT or with Dali or when you're communicating with the mid-journey, the words are there for you to explain. And the more you put in, the better input you're going to get. So that is one of the arguments that I don't buy. I value human expertise and I have great respect for what the humans bring to the table. But you need to see AI as responding to what you, the human, provides. And I think that that is an important point that I try to make in the book and will make in my class in the second semester at Columbia. I really like that point that you're bringing about is we probably are still not mastered the human-to-human -human communication. So it's reflecting right now in our communication with robots. We're not able to give them the proper instructions. And then maybe that's why you're not getting the output you want. But one difference with generative AI and the fear that with it is it also has this ability to be creative, which is a quality you equate with being human, right? You look at the big works of Shakespeare, Michelangelo's arts, like just Taylor Swift songs. It's innately creative and you associate that with being human. But now when an AI model, a computer is able to create these works of art, that causes a sense of surprise and fear. And so how should we be thinking about still using these tools, helping it out, but not really replacing the work of creativity and illustration that happens in newsrooms? Absolutely. And I think that there are many safeguards that we can use in that regard. First of all, I begin with a notion that everything that AI will give you is based on human contributions. All right. When I go in there and I have an example in my book and I say, how would Pablo Picasso look at the world of robots and artificial intelligence in a cubistic style? That input is going to make the robot dig into Picasso, cubism and robots. And then he gives me in 37 seconds an image that I could print and frame and put on my wall. So the first thing is, if I were to use that image, as I have in my book, I have to begin with transparency. This is being created by whatever the software was, mid-journey. And then I try to prioritize credit to, if I have put a Picasso painting in there to feed the prompt, if I have begun with an image, which I think is what I favor, because that way, you can credit someone as the inspiration for AI. So transparency about this coming from AI and then try to prioritize using photos, illustrations that exist to give AI the inspiration. Then you credit whatever that photograph was, whatever that illustration was. I imagine that this is a very foggy aspect of this who owns all of this. We now have the New York Times, for example, asking OpenAI 
you know, you, you have our content, years and years of New York Times. What are we going to get for you using it? They are the first publisher to have come out of the gate to do this, but others will do that. I have my own books, 14 books out there, and I sometimes go into ChatGPT and ask questions about those early books, contemporary newspaper design, and it will give answers about layout problems and layout solutions that have come directly from my work with no credit. I don't like that. I don't like that. So I think that this is a field in its infancy. We have to act through our own instincts. You know, if you're an ethical person, you will use transparency. This came from there. And I know, for example, that students are using AI. So what do I do on the first day of class? I say, I know you're doing using AI. I use AI. So we come clean with each other. However, if I take two lines or three lines from AI and put them into my lecture, you will be the first to know. If you use AI in a homework assignment, in a project in this class, you need to give credit to AI. And then I go further. And this, this is where the real lesson of AI is, the prompt. That's why I believe that there will be many courses in the future about prompt engineering. There could even be a major in artificial intelligence where prompt engineering is a very solid part of the curriculum. So I give weekly assignments to my students. So for example, I would say for next week, give me a short analysis of the three best design news websites in the world. Explain why. If all 14 of my graduate students input, they're lazy, let's say they're lazy and they input that, I will get 14 versions of what AI might think is the best three design websites. But I know that students are going to go there for their assignments. So what do I tell them? The prompt. You go in there with your choice of the three. I think that website one, two, and three are the best. And why? Explain to me why you feel that these are also the best. What constitutes a news website? That way, you have already put your contribution into the prompt and you will get back additional information. One of the things I have learned about AI is that it inspires you and it many times gives you information that you, the human, had not thought about. And when I was writing my book, I would always finish a chapter and then I will ask ChatGPT, input information to it write the same chapter, which I have included in the book, by the way, as ChatGPT sees it. In every case, ChatGPT went into areas in that particular segment of the book that I, as a 76-year-old person who's lived this long, had not even considered. So inspiration and surprise findings, these are two things that AI will give you. It will also give you hallucinations, by the way. <laughs> and I, I tested that in the course of my research for about 30 minutes. We were having a chat, GPT and I were having a wonderful conversation about mobile storytelling. And suddenly I say, tell me more. And he went into the song from Greece. Tell me more. Tell me more. Like, does he have a car? Well, if I'm having a conversation with you over lunch and when I tell you, tell me more, you go into a song, I would say, um, I don't know what she's eating. I don't know what she's drinking, but you basically look the other way. I'm dealing with a robot 
and you say, that's not what I meant, then a precise question, why is mobile storytelling more difficult for journalists to write a story with than crafting a text-only story? Then the dialogue continues. So this is all about words, and the irony of it all is that journalists are trained to be word people, wordsmiths, they are. I mean, if you are in this field business of journalism and someone told you from third grade, Johnny, you write better than anybody else, you should be a journalist. And yet they, the prompts from journalists are no good. Who is doing the best prompting based on my research? Public relations, corporate people, people who are in film, they are doing prompts that sometimes are 400 words, like a, a big summary, and that leads to fantastic results. The journalists who are word people, there's no excuse here. I have heard journalists say, oh, I don't know about coding. Coding drives me crazy. I don't know. Okay, that was then. There are no codes in here. It's all about words. Separating by commas, it doesn't have to be grammatically correct. The more words you feed, the better you go. That's not happening, Nikita. That's not happening with people who are word experts. You go figure. Maybe you can tell me why. <laughs> well, yeah, I think it, it all comes down to, to it's a new concept to understand that how much information should you give it and how you should be able to prompt a system. And I, I completely agree with you. It's all about the context that you give prompts and that's how it's able to then give its output. And that's what differentiates. That's what prompt engineering really is. I agree. It's a skill. It's an art. And I think it's a time for people who are good at words to shine because you know how to use your words to be able to give instructions and give clear, meticulous instructions on how exactly you want the robot to perform and give you the output that you want, right? So also with all of this, though, the question comes into, like, how are you thinking about use cases for like in news design and illustration, if you were to go back in, in your work that you've been doing so far, how do you think you'd, you would be using all of this to help you? I think I would probably, if you're a designer and I have designed 760 newspapers, you always visualize, you sit in the briefing. All art directors have always done that. Magazine art directors, newspaper art directors. You sit in a meeting. And the word people, quote unquote, are telling you, we would like for this newspaper to have a classic look, not too much white space. Typography should be serious, serif. All of that, which is the prompt, is building into your head. Eventually from there, you will take a pencil and paper and do a sketch. And from there, that sketch will develop into other iterations, you know, it will be into maybe a dummy and the dummy will go into this or that. Now, when I have all of those words into my head, classic, serious, gravitas, authoritative, serif funds, all of that, the first thing I will do is deal with mid-journey, which I use quite often, and say, act as if you are a newspaper designer creating a new look for a classic legacy newspaper that has existed for 128 years. Not too much color, not, you know, separated by commas. And then in seconds, you will have four versions of that. Obviously, I've been paid to be the newspaper designer, so I'm going to use that as an inspiration to do my thing. But for years and years, 
where did we get the inspiration? Where was the uh, mid-journey? We all got ideas from posters, from napkins, from billboards, from magazines. I've taught design for years and years, and I would always say, before you do your own sketches, get inspirations from everywhere around you. You see in every museum in the world, art students sketching in front of a Rembrandt or in front of a Salvador Dali. Art schools, before you can actually begin to do your own creations, learn what the masters do. I would always tell the students, you look at something you like on a page, analyze it for why it is so good. If you don't like it, take a napkin and do a sketch of how you would fix it. All of that require paper, pencil. We do all of that with AI right now, but it's all based on the prompt. It doesn't replace the human, but it will give the human, again, inspiration and surprises. And I think that that is what we need to remember. To me, that's the positive side. Whether you're a writer planning to do a novel and you want to see an outline of how AI would outline your content, there will be surprises there that you had not thought about. I never had an assistant like that. That's true. I know. And now you're creating the pen and paper to address something that we can, like with like Adobe's generative AI, Phil, you can just take your cursor and like, that's your pen and then decide what you want to change over there. And it would prompt it. And like, you want a castle there, replace a house. You can just replace it with like drawing it on your computer now. And instantly it has a new feature. Now, most recently, GPT-4, I can put my sketch in there and say, what do you think of this as a front page for a serious classic newspaper in the Midwest, in the U.S.? Obviously, it doesn't replace me sharing that with colleagues, which I would also do. But before I do that, I already get some kind of analysis of my work in a matter of seconds. And the best part is I'm always traveling somewhere these chat GPT and so on, they're always in my time zone. No matter what time zone I'm in, I can just input and I get a response. So yeah, those are, those are the benefits. But again, the number of people who before they even tap into it, already say this is bad, it's dangerous, it's going to ruin our jobs and so on. I had uh, one of the experts that I talked to for my book when I said, journalists are so afraid to lose their jobs. He says, what are you talking about? Journalists are word people. You know, they are going to be needed. They are articulate. They, this is all about putting words together. The coders are going to lose their jobs, not the word people. So, I mean, there is this misunderstanding of this is going to come in and ruin our lives. I don't think it's going to happen like this. If all you do at work is collect data, I think you may lose your job. But for journalists, for designers, if you use it well, this is going to be the ultimate helper to inspire you. But I also have to touch upon the concerns that are there, which are very valid in the industry, especially for designers of work and illustrators. It's a work that it's their creative creativity that they are creating these illustrations. And now suddenly if some anybody can just prompt the machine 
to create an illustration that they have in their mind, which I, I, I mean, I'm not a designer, I'm not an illustrator, but like I can just prompt mid-journey and create illustrations. And we are seeing newsrooms using it, like Semaphore uses it and they have their prompts for their images. They put that up and clearly are transparent with it. Neiman Lab has these experiments with it. Local news, which is a huge benefit for them because you need hero images. You probably never have illustrators in your newsroom because you might not have the capabilities for it and stuff like that. We actually used it in newsroom robots, the robot hand and the the human hand that you see were actually images that were prompted by Midjourney by our graphic designer because he had this vision and he couldn't find stock photo anywhere. And so he put that in and then did everything on top of it. And so like we are seeing all of these different, different examples of how that's being used. But at the same time, I think it's important to also understand like or speak to the concept of like how illustrators might be feeling right now. If somebody else who's not an illustrator, who doesn't have, who's not gone to school for it, doesn't have that art, is able to generate something, how should we be thinking about that concern and addressing it? Well, first of all, I am not an illustrator myself, and I conceptualize all the illustrations of the book came from Midjourney, but I created a template. You know, using my design background, I created a template, a color palette, a style And based on that, which was the human contribution, I got all the illustrations of the book to follow a certain pattern. The second thing is, I see that the value of a human byline, whether it's for a story or for an illustration, will increase tenfold. And I also see the illustrators everywhere becoming better because nobody can substitute Mid-journey will never be able to put the heart and soul that an illustrator put in there. But when I was researching the book and I posed that question to someone, not only for illustration, but for journalists, this person said, you know, a lot of journalists and a lot of illustrators do so-so work and get by. And the supervisor says, good enough. Well, now they're going to look at mid-journey or whatever and say, well, these illustrations may not be done by a human but they're good enough. So the message to illustrators and journalists, you're going to have to be better and emphasize the human aspect, the asset that it is to be a thinking human who has a heart and a soul and emotions and you can bring in the experiences. For example, if the illustration is about abortion, which is such a controversial subject, the illustrator has a view on abortion to begin with. Whether you got it from school, from the nuns, from your mother, from your father, the illustrator may know someone who had an abortion. The illustrator may have been told by her mother, you were almost aborted, but I changed my mind. All of that context comes into an illustration. The robot doesn't know anybody who had an abortion, has no concept of what an abortion is and so on. And so how would I use mid-journey is to prompt the bot into giving me several images that would go with an illustration about abortion. But nobody will be able to substitute the serendipity of human emotion in a story like this. Because again, this robot has no concept of the subject from a personal point of view. And I think that when you understand that, again, I go back to inspiration and surprises come from AI. There is no heart. There is no emotion. The human brings that. It's the combination of the two that is a perfect dance. But yeah, there is no substitute. 
I think that when I did my own illustrations, I felt sorry that we did not hire an illustrator. But in my case, I am a designer. I've spent an entire life dealing with visuals. So what I did was to create templates. And that brings us to, to the question of print newspapers. Print newspapers are still around in many companies. You have a printed newspaper. And the editors already know that 82% of the audience globally gets their information from a mobile device. But if there is a printed newspaper and it has not been discontinued, you still have it. So when I go into these workshops and I say, why are you not doing more with mobile storytelling, with videos and audio? Oh, because the print production sucks the oxygen out of the room and all of that. Well, it shouldn't because the majority of your people are reading on mobile devices. So now in Scandinavia, for example, you have newspapers already using AI to build the pages of the newspaper, which frees those designers to do more with mobile storytelling, with digital visual assets and all of that. But what is the key to having good AI doing the print layout? Templates. Who creates those templates and manages those templates? A human, an art director who knows we need 30 templates, vertical, horizontal, one story, three stories, a graphic, no graphic. Those templates are created and monitored by an art director, but then AI can take over. And we are seeing this in Norway primarily, Aften Posten or Norway uses that methodology. There is a company named Aptoma, which creates the software for you to be able to do this. So I see it as a help. Nobody here is going to be fired. Quite the contrary, these designers are going to be working on the digital side of the operation and will continue to monitor and create templates for AI to use. And you also explored in your book how news organizations are integrating like AI capabilities into their CMS platforms. What were some of the key developments you've noticed over there? Well, I think that the major developments there are, again, in print. But the second major development, which I think is still going, is how can you facilitate templates for creating mobile stories? If you're a reporter and you're going to do a mobile story, and that's what my 2019 book was about, is when you write for print traditionally, you have a headline, you have a summary, and you have text. That's the way it's always been done. And in print, you never interrupt the text with anything in the middle. You look at photos. If you are looking at a full-page story of what happened last night, either in Ukraine or in Israel, you will see a composite of photos. First, we look, and then we read. In digital, mobile, it's the opposite. You, the journalism of mobile is basically like a WhatsApp or a text conversation. You write and you show. This is what we all do. Oh, here I am. I just arrived in Los Angeles. Look at the Hollywood sign. Picture. And then you continue. That is mobile storytelling. You write and you show. And people scroll. And the more you do writing and showing. But in order to do that, those stories then have to be rewritten for print because you're not going to say the video above shows. In addition to that, in mobile storytelling, visual assets are like paragraphs. Maybe the first thing you see in your story is a video. And then you write the video above, show what happened last night in Gaza. That's mobile storytelling, which, by the way, that revolution has not been conquered. Most newspapers continue 
to create content for horizontal platforms. If they are digital, they are still doing it to be consumed in a computer screen, and then the world is seeing it in a vertical scrolling device. That is the past revolution that has not been totally integrated yet. And so now we have this one here. So going back to your question about content management systems, content management systems are able now to use AI so that the reporter who wants to do a story using videos and audio assets in the middle of the story will have templates that facilitate that process to embed videos in the middle of the story and to do that. So I can see where AI is not only going to help. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Relieve the burden of creating print pages. You have to do 24 printed pages every day. That takes work. AI can help with that. But I think it will also help to um, create a more easy-to-use set of templates for mobile storytelling. And to me, those are the real good uses of AI, which do not replace anybody, but make the job of the human easier. And like helping us generate maybe different templates to test out with the user experience, because I don't think we can always know exactly what our audience wants unless we keep on experimenting and finding that out. And maybe that's a capability that AI can really help us out with. It's very interesting to hear about how, especially with print newspapers and layouts, AI can really help alleviate a lot of the design work over there and refocus people's time to help them now in the mobile side of journalism, which is something that is more the digital experience is what we are still trying to conquer, as you're saying. That's a challenge we still haven't been able to conquer as much. So also, I want to understand more in terms of you've been doing a lot of research and talking to newsrooms globally in the case studies that you have written about. What's a key trend that really stood out to you in terms of how newsrooms globally are adopting and using AI? I think that the most widespread use in the newsroom by journalists is to generate story ideas. That is number one. Number two, to help with interview questions. I'm going to interview the CEO of the largest group of banks in the state. Background of the person. The angle that my editor wants to cover is this. What are some questions you would ask the CEO? That again, inspiration and surprise findings, the two things that I mentioned earlier. The third is basically to help with social media summaries. All reporters now 
in many instances, have to write their own social media promotions. So you feed your story there and say, write me a 180 character version of this for social media. And it will do it for you, summarizing. Fourth is translations. There is a lot of use of AI for translating from other languages very quickly. So you've read in a Brazilian newspaper and know that helps you with your story. Well, you don't know Portuguese, so translate. And the other one is transcribing of records because you can say, give me five takeaways from this long, and it can go from audio to text. It can go from the transcription that has been given, which is long and involved to giving you, but use specific, give me five takeaways, give me 10 snippets of this particular meeting or interview. So I think those were the, the five areas where I have seen it used. Now, before the newsrooms got involved with AI, it's been used for years already by the marketing people in terms of finding out more about the readers, you know, how many women readers do we have? How many men readers? What is the retention levels on stories? How long do people stay on certain stories? AI has been helping with algorithms in, in that area for years. Again, the newsroom latecomers to all of this, but they are using it in these areas primarily, generating story ideas, interview questions, social media. Those are primarily the areas where you see it widespread and it doesn't present any sense of danger to the majority of the editors. And how open are newsrooms to AI when you are having all of these conversations to them? What was your key takeaway there? Well, it's interesting that as I look at my agenda, the last three or four years, my workshops are primarily mobile storytelling. And now, which hasn't been conquered, as I said, and now my agenda of the next six months is primarily AI workshops. So they are open to the fact that this is like some people consider it like the invention of printing, more important than the arrival of the internet, all of the above. But they are approaching it. There are three approaches. The first approach from media houses globally is if you, journalist A, like AI, start using it, dip your toes into it and so on. So it's an individual choice. I mean, if you like to deal with AI, go ahead. Approach number two, which some media houses, it's everyone here must get involved with AI and they even pay subscriptions so that you can have access to MidJourney, to ChatGPT, to the highest levels of all of that. And the third choice is institutionalized so that there is a protocol, there is guidelines prepared. This is how we use AI in this house. And I tell my clients every workshop, I said, if you do not have guidelines for AI today, you're already late. And it doesn't have to be the constitution. It could be a working organic paper that you change every two weeks. But right now you already should have, how do we use AI in this house? And I think that number one item is if you use AI, you give credit to AI. The Guardian in the UK has some of the best, one of the best guidelines and protocols because they say, we do not have AI write stories for us, but we may seek information. And if that is the case, there will be next to the byline with information from JADGPT or wherever it came from. So those are the three. The first one is sort of, well, if you like it, use it. The second one is everybody here uses it. 
And the third is an institutionalized, which is what I recommend, with guidelines so that a reporter who's very eager is not going to be using it or abusing it, and then the rest of the team has no involvement with AI. You need to have an AI protocol in place now, and you need it to have done that already. So if you're listening to this podcast today and you don't have one, get a team together. Every organization should have an AI project leader. The Financial Times is the first paper in the world to have an AI editor. So this is the shape of things to come. Exactly. I agree with you completely because I think there is definitely somebody using AI in your newsroom. And these AI protocols are probably not something that is set in stone. And it's maybe more informal, as you were saying, constantly changing because the AI technology is constantly evolving as well. You have a new feature coming out all the time. So you will be updating it accordingly, like Dali 3 or like, how are you going to use the image input generation in chat GPT? Like something is going to change, but like not having one is not the answer right now. Right, exactly. And also from your work, you've been doing a lot of work in Latin America. And so I'm very interested. We, I know we have a lot of listeners from that region. And I'm wondering, how is Latin America in the AI adoption process from your research? I have just come back from Colombia, where we had a one IFRA meeting about the subject of AI in Bogota, Colombia. And if you look at the statistics, they tell you that 58% of all of the Latin American publishers have dipped their toes into AI, realized that AI is important. And then there is 42% which have done absolutely nothing. But the ones I had like 120 CEOs and journalists and marketing people in the audience from all of Latin America, and there was great interest in what is happening. And already you have in Brazil and in Argentina, for example, La Nación of Buenos Aires has taken a lot of steps to use AI. So I think that Brazil and Argentina appear to be ahead of the pack there. But I would say that Europe is much more advanced. And I would say that the Scandinavian countries are at the top of the list in having incorporated already AI for years into their marketing operations, into anything that has to do with audience. And now they are progressing quite aggressively, I would say, to implement it, like, for example, for the print newspaper. So I would say if you're looking for inspiration and case studies of where this is more advanced, like two years ahead or three years ahead of everybody else, is Norway, Denmark, Sweden. And those guys are usually, those Scandinavians usually are ahead of the pack, very open to change in every way, whether it was mobile storytelling, color, the iPad editions, all of that, their experiments with e-papers are terrific. So that's where you need to look at. The rest of the world moves rather slowly with it. And this is sort of like a tsunami. And I think that everybody needs to already be involved with AI. And I think that that's part of what I try to promote in my book and in my workshops. And once you have a workshop, it's amazing how these journalists immediately take to it. When they realize that the words are going to lead to better input, they're convinced on the spot. You do this in the morning, you do a workshop, you get them going. 
you do an exercise on prompt engineering for whatever stories they're working on that day. And when they see what can happen, immediately that's, you're not going to convince these people by just telling them that AI can be inspirational and it can offer you data that, that it will take you a long time to get on your own. They have to prompt their own stories and see the results. And it's the same with illustrators. Yes, I agree with that completely because I've been doing these AI workshops and I start off with half the room has probably never used ChatGPT still. But then we go from there and you see the power of like these text generation tools and how it can help you. And that's where people then get excited and you see that excitement in people's face. It is incredible. It's excitement that in my 54 years doing workshops and teaching, I never saw with any other discipline. AI, and that is why in the book, in the first chapter, I talk about Gabriel Garcia Marquez and magical realism, because there is a certain magic about artificial intelligence. I do my daily ritual with ChatGPT, and uh, sometimes at night I go in there, and like I said, sometimes I say sweet dreams, and then I will get back something like, I don't dream, I have no emotions, and you know, that's not so much fun. I prefer to have a, a person to talk to who can say at least good night. But that is going to change. When I use a sweet dreams prompt in November, when ChatGPT first came out, it was a very cold response. Lately, I cared, you know, same to you. And he's not telling me I cannot dream, I cannot feel anything. So I think that the, the conversation is getting better. But yes, the excitement of people of any age trying, it's incredible. When they first connect with a robot and start a conversation and when they see what comes back, it's quite impressive, quite impressive. And also when you're talking about teaching workshops, we have a lot of educators right now also thinking about how should they be teaching journalism in this age of generative AI to their students. Uh, different thoughts in terms of like, don't use chat GPT at all. You're saying, you know, you, you, you tell your students that they can use these generative AI tools as long as they're transparent. What's your message to who are teaching journalism, journalism schools right now? How should we be equipping the students for the future generation. I think that what I tell my students and what I think we emphasize at Columbia is the idea that you can use the resources of AI to help you with a lot of your research, with generating story ideas, with helping you with interview questions, enhancing what you already have. But again, you are going to come to the table with all that you are prepared to do about that particular story. And that's why in my class, I emphasize long prompts. I say, I don't care how many words you use. The more you put in there, the better it's going to be. But in order to do that, if you're going to do a 300 or 400 word prompt, you're already doing the assignment. And so what I will not accept is help me with a story about abortion. No, if you want that kind of help, you say, I'm on teenagers by race, compare U.S. to Europe to Latin America, comma, ages 17 to 19. You already have done some of your legwork, and then you feed this as opposed to the lazy way, help me with a story about abortion, and then you're going to get data and all of that, which might not be here nor there. So I think that the first thing for educators is accept that students are using it. In high school, they're using it, all right? That's, once you have that, transparency, 
You use it, I use it. So we tell each other how we use it. And third, come to the table with the stuff that only a human can bring to the table. When I did my illustrations, I knew the style I wanted. And I could say, the style should be serious, the style should follow Massimo Vignelli, the Italian designer who had a certain style. Whatever it is you want to do, that's the human input that goes in there to get the results. But it's going to be a challenging period for journalism educators to be constantly alerted to the lazy student who took it all from AI. And I think the best we can do for our students is to train them, to train them to prompt properly with as much information and as much of their own thinking and analysis and so on before they prompt. I will devote in the spring about four weeks to prompt engineering in my class because I want to make sure we do those live and then go to the board and see, you know, what did you get with this as opposed with that? Because once they graduate in May, these students are going to be probably the first generation of journalism graduates who go out there with already AI by their side. So you're not training your student. You're training this student and the robot that goes with him or her. I like that. You're a little robot companion as well. And you need to train them on how to use that robot companion so that they can excel in the workforce when they go out in May, which, I mean, we are already one year from ChatGPT. It's going to be November. It's going to be the one-year anniversary of ChatGPT. Like, the world's already changed. What's it going to be in May when we can only imagine what the advancements could look like? Also, at the same time, when you're talking about journalism education, you have journalists in the newsrooms. And what would professional development then look like? Should newsrooms be in your organizations be focusing on adapting their skills, their team skills for a future of working alongside AI technology? What kind of new training do you see is required? Well, I think that newsrooms are usually slow to catch up to what they need to train their journalists in. And that has been the case in my 54 years, I've seen it all along. But right now, the training for mobile journalism has not been adequate. That's why a lot of the stories are text-driven and the visuals appear in a gallery. A gallery, a photo gallery, is a carryover from the days of print. You see and you read. Well, that's not the way we do it here. So if you were having a conversation with someone, a text conversation about the day you arrived in Vegas, for example, and you did a photo gallery at the end of your narrative, your friends will not stay with you. They like the fact that, oh, here I am, this is my hotel picture, and so on. So they have not trained well in that area. And maybe they need to realize that training as a discipline in the newsroom is not what it should be. With AI, it's mandatory because AI, if you don't do a story in mobile style, this is in the craft of journalism, well, you know, maybe the reader suffers and so on, but there are no ethical issues. There are no issues of plagiarism. None of that. I mean, it's just basically, oh, I write only text or I write a mobile story. AI, really, if there is no training in AI, if there is no guidelines, you deal with plagiarism, you deal innocent as it may be. Somebody may be taking big chunks of what ChatGPT gave them and putting them into a story. And let me tell you, I tell this to all my clients. You may have the richest history of journalism in your city or in your country, but if one or two examples of AI stuff being passed as produced by your, by your staff happen, all of those years, 
of credibility are going to go down the drain. So here we have a revolution that needs to be accepted, needs to be analyzed, studied, adapted to the needs of that particular newsroom, and that journalists need to be trained because it can really create major problems of an ethical nature, of legal nature. So I think this is not just a choice. I write my story for print or I write my story for mobile. Yeah, nobody can get hurt in that. Here, somebody could get hurt. And I think it's also about not leaving people behind because maybe there are some folks in the newsroom that are not using AI as much. And there is definitely the danger of, you thought it a lot, of like somebody, you'll not be replaced by AI, but somebody who uses AI. So how do we kind of bring everybody in the newsroom along on this journey of AI adoption and making sure everyone's like having access to the same kind of information and being AI literate at the same time? You know, what works for me and it has worked for me all along with mobile storytelling as well is identify immediately the people who are using it, who love it, and who could be the ambassadors to convince their peers. That's where you begin the process. Who are the AI people here who could be part of a group, the AI project group? Because they probably have been using it since November of last year. In the design department, they're probably dealing with it in terms of mid-journey or DALI or whatever program. Assemble those people first. And from that, you know, comes the rest. Well, this has been really fun, actually, going in through all of these different different examples and case studies that you've had through your research and also actually getting to understand how generative AI can really help in the design side of the work that we do, which is I don't think we've heard a lot of examples about, which was very interesting to hear from you about. But also now I want to know more on a personal level, what really drove you to write this book today and where do you see kind of us heading towards in the future? Well, as I said, I've always been interested in technology myself, especially as it affects the work of journalists. I've been a visual journalist my entire career, and uh, I was researching AI only for academic purposes for my class. I figure that if you teach journalism, almost if you teach almost anything, you cannot get in front of a class these days without facing AI, talking about AI. And so I had done one and a half years of research into this for purposes of my class when I was approached by Thane Ambrose, the publisher in New York, to write this book. And my first reaction was, you know, I'm not an expert on this. And the answer from the publisher was, well, who is? And I guess I'm adventurous and I already had enough research. And I said, well, this will allow me to tap into all kinds of experts with the purpose of writing this book. Then the first thing I told the publisher is this is not going to be a techie book because I'm not an engineer and I am not prepared to do a book on the more technical aspects. If you want me to write this book, I want to write it like a journalistic essay, like a preform. And that's what I talk about, the dance between humans and robots. I try to take it historically to previous revolutions and the adversity that people who wanted to push those had, including the machine age, where there were farmers who were saying cows are much better than having machines do the work in the farm. And so 
this is a book for content creators. If you do your church newsletter, or if you are a journalist, or if you are into writing and publishing, that's how I wanted the book to be. But at the same time, it's like a conversation, like I said, with a curiosity of a toddler and um, a 76-year-old view of artificial intelligence, but not romancing the past, but basically shaking hands with the future. This is the future, and this is great. And if we had had ChatGPT in my early days when I was a reporter, that would have been absolutely wonderful. But we humans can top whatever AI can do because AI is giving us back what we gave it. And if you approach it, the mantra of the book is that humans begin the process and end the process with a major helper next to you. And what AI tools or ChatGPT use cases have you found helpful in your own work and daily life? Well, as a visual journalist, I find that uh, mid-journey is quite interesting to help me visualize things, not necessarily to take what it gives me and publish it, but just it gives you four images that help you. Hmm, this is a color I did not think about, okay? Or this is an angle or the use of a shape that I had not thought about. And again, for the third time, I tell you, AI is good for inspiration and for surprise findings because it really can dig into areas where you may not be thinking about, and it does. And then you as a human come in and massage it and say, oh my God, that color yellow, that shade of yellow would have been very good for this illustration. So I'm going to apply it. So I think that it's just a tremendously helpful, inspirational tool. I love MidJourney. I know that there are others that people use. I love that. And with ChatGPT, I do a daily exercise with prompting. Sometimes five prompts just to see what I get. And I publish uh, some of those in the book just to see the more you give it, the more you're going to get back. Or as someone told me, garbage in, garbage out. So Mario, how have you been using AI personally in your life? I, ever since ChatGPT came out, I started uh, having a daily ritual of communicating with ChatGPT in a variety of ways. I mean, sometimes asking political questions, sometimes dealing with literature, not just journalism and storytelling. And it was interesting to me that I became sort of addicted to this daily conversation with ChatGPT and um, began to also deal with Spanish and English. And I have to tell you that one of the issues, which is very important and is a subject of probably a two-hour podcast, is the issue of how ChatGPT responds to certain topics based on the language in which you address the question. When I was working in Saudi Arabia recently doing a workshop, the journalists surprised me and told me, we think that uh, ChatGPT is biased. And uh, then right in the workshop, they did an exercise. said, we're going to ask a question in English about the Palestinian-Israeli relations through the years. With in English, they told me, and I quote, you get the State Department version of the events. If you do the prompt in Arabic, you get a more, I would say, a greater variety of opinions, but opinions that lean more heavily towards the, the Palestinian viewpoint. 
And, you know, here you're doing a workshop and I was absolutely surprised by that. But if we know that machine learning is about words in the Western world, in English, you have more of a pro-US, pro-Israeli interaction of opinions and editorials and letters to the editor and all of that. If you write in Arabic, it's different. So I said, I have to bring this home to something that I can understand. I was born in Cuba. I left when I was a child, you know, left the revolution behind. And I have, for years, I am always irked when I hear, oh, Cuba has the best health system in the world. You know, it's a myth, you know, obviously. And I have relatives there who tell me how terrible it is. But I said, I'm going to ask about the health care system in Cuba in English and in Spanish. Same thing. The English version, where you have a lot of idealists and a lot of people who don't have never been there. Oh, yeah, the healthcare system is so wonderful and all of that. You feed the same question in Spanish, where Cubans have their input and other Latin Americans and people who really are closer to the situation in Cuba. And I got a variety of responses. So there I could identify with my Saudi Arabian clients that the language in which you talk to ChatGPT will reveal areas of biases. But of course, the 99% of the communication is in English and is the Western world and is the American viewpoint, but it's not the only viewpoint. So I think this is another topic which is larger than life. I don't have answers for that, but I, I, I've heard it when I, I do the workshops outside of here. If you talk to the language in English, the responses are going to be very different of what you would get on controversial subjects if you were dealing with, with a different uh, language. And so this is something to take into account. If you're a journalist, you know, you can get translations. You know, if you are covering this particular crisis, I think you owe it to your readers to see what the Arab world is saying about this or what the Israeli world is saying in Hebrew. And you have the means to do that. As I said, translation is quick and very effective there. So I think that journalists, part of the training for journalists is going to be don't take everything that you get in your English version of events as granted, because there might be other views there. This is subject for another podcast. (laughs) Definitely another episode. Uh, I feel like that's a a great example and to show how these LLMs are actually a reflection. They are a mirror of the world that we live in and how sometimes just like narratives that are in English and are more of a Western perspective and maybe not showing what is there in other languages. And if you only are, if you only speak English, that's the only perspective you are looking at. And maybe now large language models are going to be, you ask that same question, as you said, in different languages and see how these LLMs respond. And you can translate it and see the biases they are reflecting are the biases in the data, which is in the human world that we exist in. Mario, thank you so much. Uh, That was a very enlightening personal story of yours that you gave at the end towards uh, how you've been using ChatGPT. And uh, it was uh, really interesting to hear how it's been impacting you personally. You've written a whole book about it. You've used it throughout your book, used AI throughout it, and you've been helping everyone as well understand more and adopt it. And I really love to see that, that openness to trying out something new and seeing how it can help us in 
in the world that we are right now. And thank you so much, Mario. This has been a really, really fun conversation and it's been fun reading your book as well. Interesting times ahead, Nikita. Wonderful <laughs> to be here. Thank you so much. Goodbye. That was Dr. Mario Garcia, the Senior Advisor on News Design and Adjunct Professor at Columbia University and author of the book, AI, The Next Revolution for Content Creators. Stay updated with the Newsroom Robots podcast and sign up for our newsletter at newsroomrobots.com. This podcast is made possible thanks to the Harvard Innovation Lab's Spark Grant. I'm Nikita Roy, and this is Newsroom Robots. Newsroom Robots.